let's get in the word. We're back in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. We're going to read through verse 24. You know, we took a break from Galatians to preach through uh, our Advent sermons. We're back in Galatians, and we will be here for probably a couple months. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. That would be important to note. The gospel I preached is not of human origin. Paul's trying to make a point here. For I did not receive it or learn it from any human source. Instead, I received it by a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I was savagely persecuting the church of God and trying to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my nation and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when the one who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I did not go to ask advice from any human being. Notice again, Paul saying, I did not consult with a person, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before me. But right away I departed to Arabia and then returned to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas or Cephas, um, Cephas is the one who's saying um, long-haired country boy, I think. Something like that. Cephas. And get information from him, and I stayed with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. I assure you that before God, I'm not lying about what I'm writing to you. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, but I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing, the one who once persecuted us is now proclaiming the good news of the faith he once tried to destroy. So they glorified God because of me. Now if you back up to verse 1 here, this is from Paul, an apostle, not from, what does your Bible say right there? Not from men. Paul is trying to make a point in this first chapter of Galatians, actually the first chapter and a, and a half of Galatians, what I am telling you did not come from man. Why would Paul write this letter to the Galatians that is one of the most technically theological letters he's ever written and spend the first chapter and a half saying, what I'm telling you is from God, not from man. That's our first question, okay? And why, if Paul is about to give us one of the most technological, not, not te one of the most technical theological treatises that we have in the scripture, why does he begin with his story? 
if you'll notice, those of you who were with us through the book of Acts, we've already heard this story three times. The book of Luke, the, I mean the book of Acts written by Luke tells this story three times. Here we are in the book of Galatians, the fourth time, hearing Paul's testimony. That's our other question. Why, if Paul's about to give this really awesome theological treatise, is he using his story? Now, here's what we need to know. At the time, this new way is emerging. They're calling it the way, they're calling it, um, he, he uses a, a, a statement here that's really interesting. Um, he calls it the church of God. Uh, but this thing is new, this movement is new where Jesus is the Messiah and these people are following him and these people who are following him are, are growing in number, therefore because they're growing in number they're having to establish some governmental parameters, so they're, they're naming things like deacon and they're naming things like bishop, but this is just so that they can have some, some order because I mean, you know, if you get a room more than about three or four people, you've got to have somebody that's the boss, right? Or, or else it's chaos, so they're trying to figure all this out. But in order to approve of this, this move, it all has to go through Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the, the hub of oversight. They are the gatekeepers for this movement. Who is in Jerusalem? Kephas is in Jerusalem. Who is Kephas? Peter. Why is it important that Peter's in Jerusalem? Because Peter at the time, until here in a little while, James will become the head of the church. Peter is the head of the church, and nothing gets approved unless it goes through Peter. The problem is, this thing that is emerging is not some new religion. At the time, they didn't even have the concept of religion like we have. If you, if you really want to nerd out, there are some nerds in here, so I want to give you this. There's a book by Brent... Nongbri, N-O-N-G-B-R-I, called Before Religion. And it actually explains the, the culture of worship before we had categories like religion. It's a brand new thing, the category of religion. Um, so what's happening is not this new religion. Christianity is not, not a new religion. What is Christianity? It is a sect of Judaism. Well, because it is a sect of Judaism, things still have to go through this very ancient history. So we know through the story uh, that we read through the book of Acts, they're trying to figure out now, okay, all right, we know if Jews believe in Jesus, that's fine, because they're still going to be circumcised, they're still going to eat kosher, they're still going to keep the Sabbath, but what happens when people who are raised pagan, when people who are raised Gentile, when people who are uh, just Hellenistic uh, in, in thinking, when they're, when they're Greek in their thought, what happens if they believe in Jesus? What, how can we then set them apart? So they come up with these rules, right? Do y'all remember? Somebody tell me one of the rules they came up with in Acts. What are we going to do with circumcision, Ryan? Are we doing it or are we not? No, we're not doing it. That's good news. All right. Somebody else. What else can we not do? There's some prohibitions. So that this intermingling, it's important that we see what's going on here before we get into why this means anything to us. Anybody, what else was a rule? 
You can't eat pigs. You got to still eat kosher. Why is this? Because this was for the Jew the only way to actually be holy, to be set apart from the world. Okay? So they're still, they're trying to figure out, okay, if, if this sect is to grow, it still needs oversight, and we are the gatekeepers, so everything must come through Jerusalem. And Paul is saying here, I didn't get this from Jerusalem. I got this from God. I didn't get this from Cephas. I didn't go talk to anybody. He's like, he's like, this came from God, not man. I didn't even go to Jerusalem for three whole doggone years, he says. Well, why is he making this point? Because something that is happening in Paul is about to turn this understanding of the Messiah upside down, which is what the whole book of Galatians is about. It's also important for us to know that Saul was not converted to Paul. Have y'all ever been told that? That Saul was converted to Paul? Anybody? This did not happen. Saul is just his Hebrew name. Paul is just his Greek name. That's all that happened. Okay? He actually didn't even convert from Judaism to Christianity. He was under the impression that what was going on in Jesus was the fulfillment of everything he had been doing in Judaism. So he didn't even convert. He's still a full-blown Jew who just now sees the scriptures through the lens of the Messiah Jesus. Now this is what's interesting because Paul takes his message not to the Jews, but to who? The Gentiles. This is what the whole story is about. There's a word here um, around verse 13. He says, you have heard of my former way of life in Judaism. In Judaism, it's this word, eudismos. Eudismos. It means the Jews' religion. This word came into currency around the time the, the second Maccabees uh, would have been happening. Anybody remember the Maccabees? Anybody remember a thing called the Maccabean Revolt? It'd be worth typing in YouTube. They probably got a, a, a movie about it. Um, this word came to be used in order to distinguish those who were being faithful to their heritage as Jews from others, including other Jews, who were giving way to the syncretistic pressures coming from Hellenistic Antioch, which just means Greek, the Greek culture of Antioch. And they were adopting foreign ways, okay? So it's a word that came to be used when we see this, this phrase um, in Judaism. There has been a movement, and it's just important for me to say this because this actually happened in actual history not that long ago, where there was this arrogant stereotype from Christians toward Jews as if Christianity was some better expression of God worship than Judaism. And that is an error. Not only is it an error, but believing it will cause you to totally stumble in the way of truth. If, if you don't need to know, then don't know. If you do need to know, now you know. Okay? It is more accurate to say, rather that 
not that Paul was converted from Judaism to Christianity, but he was converted from a sect, something like the Pharisees, although he wouldn't have called it the Pharisees because it didn't come to be known as the Pharisees too much later. He would have been converted from something like the Pharisees to another sect of Judaism called Christianity. Um, when it comes to Paul's use of this phrase, eudasmos, this in Judaism, He's talking about his former occupation in a movement for the defense of Jewish ancestral ways. It was more a nationalistic understanding of applying Judaism. How many of y'all know the difference between nationalistic Christianity and Christianity? Anybody know the difference? Somebody give it a stab. What's the difference between nationalistic Christianity and Christianity? One is going to distinguish itself based on its national geography from the other. Okay, so if I'm a nationalistic Christian, I will see that my Christianity, my, my religion, is so interwoven in my allegiance to the nation that there is really no separation between my allegiance to the nation and my Christianity. Therefore, anyone who is opposed to my nation, I am therefore opposed to. Well, this same kind of thing is what was going on with this idea of eudismos. Which is why they would, they would raise up these things called zealots. And guess what zealots were really good at? They were really good at serious prayer, and they were really good at serious violence. Okay? And a zealot would have seen anyone who was a threat to the Jewish culture. If they saw someone that was like coming in and was going to taint the culture, they wouldn't say, mm, oh, please don't do that. They would oust them. Okay, what is Saul trying to do when he is converted? Do y'all remember what he's trying to do? He's trying to kill a sect of Jews. Because this sect of Jews is tainting pure, holy Torah observance. Are y'all still, y'all ride with me? I meant for this exegetical portion to take five minutes. We're now at 18. Welcome to me not preaching in five weeks. So, here's where things get good and start turning towards something that we might go home and say, I don't know what that meant for me. Well, get ready. Um, check out verse 14. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my nation and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when the one who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me. Here's where things get good. Notice what Paul doesn't say. And this is where the sermon turns to us today. So if you've been asleep, if I've been confusing you with, with Hellenism or with Eudasmos or with, with cultural uh, Torah observance, Come to me right here. Conversion is God's work, not ours. Paul does not say, when I decided to follow Jesus, he says, when it pleased God 
to reveal himself to me, things changed. Why is that important? Because today we're going to learn the importance of telling our story through Paul telling his. And the thing that we have got to stop doing is looking around at when we started doing something different and start looking with eyes that can see, God, when did I become aware that you were knocking the entire time? That you were always standing there? That there's never been a day when you haven't been right by me? Because until we can see that, there's no proper conversion. There's this word, uh, sorry about all the Greek words, I just, I just got to study this week a little bit, like 45 minutes, and well, no, I got to study this week, and I hadn't preached in a while, so we're going to do some Greek, some more Greek. Um, check out this word, uh, let me see if I can find it here, uh, verse 18, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. The word to visit is the word historio. It's actually got the rolled R. Can anybody do the rolled R? Allie, you can do that, can't you? Can you say historio with a rolled R? That's right. That's how that goes. Um, And it doesn't actually mean to visit. It actually has a colloquial tone. So in in Koine Greek, they would have used it as a colloquialism that would have meant to sit down and swap stories. So when... Paul is going to visit Cephas. He's not going to describe the the technical nuts and bolts of this theological understanding of what God is about to do uh, through the Messiah's fulfillment of the Torah and now Paul being the mediator to the Gentiles. What he's going to do is tell him what God has done in him. This is as technical as it's going to be. And you know what Cephas is going to do? The same thing. So this is what that word to visit means. That word historio means to to come around and swap stories. Now, when Paul is about to, to tell us how free we are to change, how free we are to go from those who have the works of the flesh, which are murder and adultery and fornication and uncleanness and gossip and lasciviousness and malice. And he's about to say, but there's this thing that has happened that now we can have the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. He's about to say there's all this stuff that is now available to you where you can be the one God has always called you to be, where the law is no longer written on the heart of stone, but it's written on a heart of flesh, where you can finally be obedient to God. He doesn't use technical language. He, he just tells a story. And you know what story he tells? The only story he knows, which is the story of what God has done because God was pleased to do something. When Paul tells us we're free to change, which is what this whole book of Galatians is about, he doesn't give us a formula. He tells us a story. Now, Every one of us has the most redemptive story to ever be told. 
Everybody in this room has the most redemptive story to ever be told. Every one of us. What we've got to get better at, there's a preacher over in Heflin who does this thing where during their church service they say, how have we seen the Lord at work in our life? And we're not good at it because what we've been taught to do is we would have been much, much, much better if the preacher would have said, how have we done something for the Lord this week? Because that's what we've been taught. We've been taught that we're the ones doing the work and he's the one just standing up there like the taskmaster. And the whole time he said, no, 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 no. I'm the one working. And if you get out of the way, you could have fruit. <laughs> that's why later Paul called it the work of the flesh. Because that's what happens when we're the ones working. And he called it the fruit of the Spirit because that's what happens when we finally slow down and let God do something. Each of these stories that's sitting in this room right now tells how a person has been set free from the confines of small ideas, from the chains of what other people think. How many of y'all have, in obedience to, to seeing where God is at work, have been set free from what other people think about you? A couple of us. Some of us have been set free from the emotional cages of guilt and shame from the prisons of self. What's interesting here too, we need to learn from Paul. He said, um, verse 15, but when the one who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I did not go to ask advice from any human being. When the one who set me apart from birth We are not a last-minute intrusion upon God's plan. We are here because God is at work. You are here because God is at work. In the story of our changed lives, nothing is wasted. Notice when Paul is telling the story, he uses all of his education. He even uses the very fact that he was persecuting the one who had come to save him as part of the story. The very one he was set out to, to destroy was the one who came to save him. And he uses it in the story. He's not crushed by the guilt of his actions. He's actually saying, no, 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 no. It is because of that that God is now using me to preach this grace that is so undeserved because if anybody doesn't deserve it, it is me. One of the things I've found is that if we will tell the story of how God is at work, we will see how much of our life we do not deserve. You need to hear this. If we will tell the story of how God is at work, we will see how much of our life we do not deserve. Therefore, we will finally be grateful. 
Because you know how m many things in your life you're grateful for that you deserve? Zero. We're not grateful if we're entitled to something. We're not grateful it was, if it was supposed to be that way. I remember when I was, uh, I was a men's director at Seven Springs, and I had one of the guys come to me one morning. He said, I haven't got high this week. I said, that don't excite me. You may call my mama right now and say, hey, mama, I haven't got high this week. She ain't going to be proud of that. I said, do something. I'll be proud of you doing something. Not not getting high. When we are living a life where everything is expected, where we're just, we're just expected, like, it, I'm, I'm expecting uh, food to be there, I'm expecting my bills to be paid, I'm, I'm expecting people to treat me a certain way. When I live this way, I have no opportunity for joy. It is when I realize what all of life is a gift that I actually have the ability to tap into joy. And it is through the same lens that we're finally able to see with eyes that can see, God, you are here, and I didn't even know it. You were right here, and I didn't even know it until I fell asleep on this rock, and you've been here the whole time. This is an important point right here. We do not begin to be in relation to God only at the moment we become aware of it. I want you to hear that again. We do not begin to be in relation to God only at the moment we become aware of it. Just because I'm aware of it doesn't mean that I'm just now in relation to God. What Paul is saying in this is that God has had plans for us since the day we were born. God has never been apart from us. That which took place in the years before our acceptance and awareness of Christ's love has not been rejected, but has actually the potential to be used. There's a, a form of emotional healing called hot sozo. He's fine, huh? There's a, there's a form of emotional healing called sozo. Anybody ever heard of sozo? Kathy, you've got sozo training, right? Or did you go... One of the things they do in, sozo, in a sozo healing encounter is they take you through prayer back in time to a traumatic experience where you didn't see God. And in that, they take you to this journey in, in your spirit. It's, try it. We can get you set up with some folks. Um, they take you back to this time and get you to actually look around and see where God was. Where was he? And guess what happens when you see him? Has anybody ever looked back to what you thought was hell and what you thought was absolute separation from God and you look back in a moment of prayer in a moment of awareness and you say, whew, I didn't even see you standing there. I thought I was by myself.
Coming back in just a second. Commercial. It's a commercial. <laughs> I want to encourage you too, if you have thought that you didn't have a story to tell because you didn't have a conversion experience like Paul that nobody in this room did. <laughs> Anybody get blinded by light? Anybody go from like absolutely killing Christians to like getting an encounter with the one you were killing who says, Cody, Cody, why are you killing me? Anybody did that? Me either. Most of us had conversions very similar to old Kephas. In the Bible, Peter has a conversion in Luke chapter 5, Mark chapter 8, John chapter 21, and Acts chapter 2. That's how many times I get converted to, except way more. I got converted this morning. But here's the encouragement to Paul's change, and here's what, here's what somebody needs to hear. I was writing this down this morning, and I thought, now this is more than just a, 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 a truth. This is, this is for somebody. A man in the mental and emotional state Paul was in is impossible to change. And yet he changes. There's no way you take someone who's so trained the way he is because his, his understanding of the world is a God understanding. He doesn't have like a, a scholastic understanding, an academic understanding, or even a, a, something where he's learned with his hands. This whole thing is ingrained in his being. He has in his entire life been raised up to see the world this way. This is the only world he sees. And still God gets him. So here's our question, and this is where, if you missed the first sermon, that was about the technical stuff of what was going on. If you missed the second one, here's the last one, sermon number three for today. We must get better at sharing our story. We must get better at sharing our story. We must get better at allowing God talk to, to be in our everyday conversation. For us to stop explaining away just because we're embarrassed or it makes us look like we're dependent on God or it makes us look a little less educated. We must do a better job of, of seeing where he's working and then saying where he's working. Because what we learn from Paul is that it is something about telling this story that is the story itself. So here's what I want you to, to go do. I, I don't do New Year's. What's today? I don't do those kind of sermons, okay? I think they're Dinkhausers. But if you like that kind of stuff, you need a resolution that you'll quit on in 34 days, here you go. 
we need to do a better job telling our story. The problem is we don't know our story. We don't take enough time to even reflect on how God has worked, much less document how God has worked. I'm going to tell you, if you think it is too sissy to journal, it's your season to journal, big dog. It's your season to slow down and say, God, where are you working? And I'm going to give you a template, like a regular old what self-help preacher would do. Here you go. How do we identify how God has been at work? Question number one. What mattered before that no longer matters? What mattered before that no longer matters? Identify it and tell somebody. What did not matter before that not only matters now, but is central to your life? Identify it and tell somebody. In 2014, I was working at the Alabama Baptist Children's Home as a social worker. It was a great job. I had the best boss I've ever worked for in my life, a man named Ted Embry, still alive, still a treasure. If you can find him, go see him, and you'll see there's Jesus Christ in a man. Um, it was a great job. Uh, I enjoyed all the folks I worked with. I could have been there forever. It was, if you're going to land a social work job, it's the one to land. I went from DHR to there. DHR, Alabama Baptist Children's Home, thumbs up. Um, and then I hear the Lord tell me, I want you to quit your job and plant a church. Well, I was making a little over $1,000 a month. I was raking it in. We were living in Birmingham. Emily's in med school. And I hear the Lord say, I want you to quit your job and plant a church. So I start talking to a friend of mine. His name is Daniel Hughes. And he's hearing the same thing. He's supposed to quit his job, except his job paid a little better than mine. He, he got paid about $110,000 a year. I got paid about twelve. Um, so it's a little harder for him, I guess. I didn't have enough, a lot saved up. So we quit our jobs to plant a church, I think. What I know is that I would have never quit my job to start a rehab, because that is gross. I've never smoked a cigarette in my life, at the time had never drank a drop of alcohol, and had never been high one day in my life on anything. Not even the Lord sets they gave me when they had to cut my foot up. I didn't even take them. I won't tell you what I did with them. That's part of the testimony. My entrepreneurialism. Um, so, I quit my job to start this church. And I go up on Chihaw, and I'm praying up there. I got pictures of this. I go up on Chihaw, and I'm, start, I'm praying over this area right here, saying, God, give me somewhere to be in this area. I come off the mountain. 
literally come off the mountain. I'm on the interstate, and I get a call from Kent Maddox. He pastors Word Alive in Coldwater. He found out that I had, me and Daniel quit our jobs. And he says, hey, there's this lady down in Roanoke. She has this place called Will's Way. Um, and she's wanting somebody to use it. Why don't y'all go down there and use it and turn it into the church? So we do. We go down there. At the time, I'm pastoring United Methodist Church in Heflin, or, or Abernathy, two United Methodist churches, one in Abernathy, one in Muscadine. So I'm driving back and forth to Oxford to work, then on Sundays driving to the United Methodist churches. All the while, I'm supposed to quit my job to plant a church. So we start meeting in this amphitheater at Will's Way, and Ryan comes and leads worship some for me, and even the folks from the Methodist church I was pastoring, they come and sit in the amphitheater with us for worship, and I think, we're about to plant a church. A couple weeks into it, this late, we get a call from this guy who I know as Fish. That's all I know. Fish needs a place to live, and we have a place to live because we've been given Will's Way, so Fish comes to live with us. Fish is addicted to methamphetamines. So I begin offering Bible classes to fish every morning because I think if we're going to plant a church, we better offer Bible classes. So every morning, fish gets up, and I offer him Bible classes. I would drive all the way from Five Points South in Birmingham, all the way to Roanoke, to give fish Bible classes. Well, then before I know it, all Daniel's cousins are addicted to substances, every one of them. And they all move in. And now, we got to rehab. And I thought we was planting a church. And then I get this, I'm praying one day, and I hear the Lord say, I'm about to give you a million dollars. I said, I'm going to need it. So I tell somebody, and they, they're like, no, he didn't. <laughs> so I tell somebody else, and they too are like, he did not tell you that. I call my mama. I said, mama. God told me he was about to give me a million dollars. And she started crying. Because mama knows that God will do stuff. Because she's seen him do stuff. And then, I need a million dollars, but I don't need a million dollars. I can't eat a million dollars or sleep in it or wear it or, or take people. I, need, I can't drive a million dollars. So, I'm given this warehouse over in Coldwater, and then I'm given this big home out in Mumford, and then this big shop out in Mumford, and then people start giving me vehicles, and before I know it, I've accumulated a million dollars worth of stuff. <laughs> Allie come and got some, and I gave it to her because there's so much doggone stuff. I had a thrift store. I had a bunch of junk. Kathy uh, had an office with me there. It was nasty and terrible, and everything was crazy. Um, in this journey, I start offering rehabilitation classes every morning, seven days a week, from from eight o'clock, no, from seven o'clock in the morning to nine o'clock in the morning every day, five days a week. I've never been high a day in my life, and this thing starts filling up. We have 50, 60, 70, 80, 200 people showing up to this class, hearing me talk about how not to do drugs. And one day. Colony, who was the lady that worked with us, comes in. She says, hey, there was a girl who I met when Daniel worked at the Center of Hope, and she's living in an abandoned trailer right up the road, and I want to bring her and her husband in. They're both living in this abandoned trailer. I don't want anybody else to come in because I'm overwhelmed. 
I can't deal with the ones we got. I'm staying the night there in this old warehouse, and it's cold, and it's weird, and this one guy's having epileptic seizures, and I think he's demon-possessed, because that's what I think everybody who's sick is at the time. So I'm trying to cast it out. I should have got him some medicine. <laughs> so I'm scared to even stay at this doggone place. So I'm overwhelmed every day. I can't do my job every day. And then they want to bring somebody else in. And so finally, Colony and my buddy Jeff Finnefrock go and get this couple, and they show up, and they are just tore up. Um, they had been intravenously using heroin and using meth, and they hadn't ate for days. And I thought, these two are struggling, man. And we had not seen anybody come through who actually... Um, who was addicted to heroin, especially IV, who actually got off of it. Um, and this couple comes in, and I start really falling in love with these guys. And I find out that this, um, months into it, finally the husband starts like really sobering up, and he's coming too, and this guy is sharp, man. He is sharp. And so I, I say, hey, I need to write a curriculum because I've never done this rehab thing before, and if somebody's going to come in behind me and we're going to have help, I need to write a curriculum. Will you help me write the curriculum? This guy's like four months into the program helping me write this curriculum for Seven Springs. And this girl, she starts, she comes to, and she was a nurse, and she's really sharp, really talented. She actually starts tutoring Colony, who was uh, Daniel's wife, starts tutoring her daughter because she knows how to do school better than the teachers do. So she's teaching this girl. Now all this journey started because I heard the Lord tell me, I want to plant a church. But he was suckering me. Because he knew I wouldn't do the first thing. But we do the thing and then all this stuff starts happening. God is working and God is paying the bills. And um, I had this one man that we met. A lot of you know him. He's from Cleveland County who one year paid my entire salary the entire year just because of the work we were doing. That's how the money was coming in. Um, anyway, I wound up falling in love with this couple. They, they do well and wind up becoming friends of mine. And now they usually sit in this room, but they are out there taking care of your kids. I was thinking this morning, like, I want to tell a story with this sermon, not just talk about stories. And that one just, like, dropped in, like, here's a story to tell. Because they'll never tell it. But they need to. And so do you. Because you have the most redemptive story the world has ever heard. <laughs> 